You really want to talk about the Schrodinger's cat, don't you? <laughs> I, by the way, I know the answer. It is dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did you kill it? No. <laughs> Poor cat. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers. We're a not-so-serious business podcast that comes to you each and every week, and we're born out of the desire to explore the, the mashup between creativity, curiosity, and a little bit of philosophy, and how it all sort of rolls out in life and also in the world of business. John, what's caught your curious eye this week? Hey, Simon. Well, quite a bit's caught my curious eye. There was stuff about AI in the news, again, unsurprisingly. It might be something we come to in another episode in more detail. But the one that really caught my eye is just a lovely uh, call out by opposition Labour Party in the, here in the UK, which is just a, an open letter supported by lots of famous actors just saying that they want to reprioritize creativity in yeah, schools wonderful. and education. They want to mandate everyone to study a creative subject. I'm unsure about the idea of mandating. They try to mandate everybody having doing a code or, or doing maths, which you see, you know, everybody do maths until they were 32. But then we had this idea of mandating creativity, and it was to recognize human skills in a world of artificial intelligence. Again, that was interesting. But let me just read this. The signatories to this open letter call creativity an essential part of human expression. And the letter said, creativity drives innovation, progress, and personal fulfillment. It is through creativity that young minds can explore their imaginations, develop critical thinking skills, and cultivate empathy. Should not every child have this opportunity? And I thought that was a fantastic thing for for me to read as I munched on my cornflakes this morning. So, how about you, and who Simon? Were some of the who were some of the dignitaries that signed it? Oh, you had uh, Grayson Perry, uh, the artist, yes. and uh, Olivia yeah. Coleman, the actress. You had Anthony Gormley, the uh, sculptorist. So yep. um, it was quite a sort of open letter from everyone across the arts. So there we go. Grayson I'm not going to get, get political, but I love the message. <laughs> no, Grayson Perry designed a house just across the river from where my wife's family live in Suffolk, which I went and had a little sticky beak at, at Christmas. There you go. It's sort of like, imagine it's like an old woman that lived in a shoe type house. That, that's not <laughs> exactly what it's like, but it's something along those lines. So, John, what caught my eye is, caught my ear really, it's not too different. I was traveling in the car with my son today, he's 14 and a half years old. He took over the music and we're in the car for an hour and a half. On comes Thundercat. Okay, hey. and I said, oh, okay, <laughs> we've talked about it a lot. I said, oh, do you know, do you, did, did you, you know, this always been your list? Oh, yeah, it is. So that made me think, John, what is it that happens in our brain that makes us like a bit of music and what's going on and we all have different tastes in music? And then I thought, well, is it possible to even not like music at all? And because I thought, no, everyone does. Everyone in the world loves music of some sort. But when I fact-checked this, there's something called musical Anedonia, A-N-E-H-D-O-N-I-A, apologies if I've said that wrong, and affects three to five percent of the population, and they have no experience, they sort of, they're ambivalent towards music. Now, it's not because of, say, uh, they're just grumpy or something like that, it's actually because of a physical response that it doesn't give, it doesn't give them a physical response, which is why we, we like music. 
So there's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So three to five percent. Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. Whereas in my head, I thought no, impossible. But what's going on in our brain when we like music? Auditory processing. When we hear music, the auditory cortex analyzes different elements such as melody, rhythm, harmony, and timbre, if I've got that right. There's an emotional response which comes from the limbic system, particularly the amygdala. I'm not always sure if I say that right. Okay, that releases things like dopamine, which is a pleasure and reward. We have memory and association. The hippocampus kicks in that can connect with something which has happened in our life. Again, the reward system kicks off. So good music kicks out um, all those feel-good neurotransmitters. It can help us focus. So it hits that attention part of our brain and also connects different parts of our brain as well when we hear a bit that you know we enjoy based on the synchronicity or the entrained rhythm and structure of the music. So it went a lot deeper than I thought. So I'm just trying to unpick this, you know, what makes us like music? Why do some people like different things? And, you know, why would my son who's 14 essentially like Thundercat when an older person does? Or am I liking something that someone younger? Or does it even anything to do with age? And my 17-year-old son, they're all big bunch of surfies. They're all into country music, which I never would have, like, you know, Garth Brooks, sort of that, you know. <laughs> and line dancing. <laughs> yeah, not almost. I've tried to get him into that. But so that was my, you know, and I sort of, I've been thinking about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, you clearly have. You've gone into that in quite a bit of depth, almost uh, in a scientific level of depth. I was just wondering, as you said that, is that's what happens when you're listening to good music. So does that not happen if we're listening to Agadoo by Black Lace? Ah, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, John. And this is also (laughs) while I was laughing about this, there's a song called um, This Guy Was On, like Britain's Got Talent or something, and he came on with the song. You might have seen it's called, it's like uh, in the worst sort of uh, Russian accent, hey, it's Friday night. And he did this sort of rap song, and my son is obsessed with it, and he got booed off. This has got 800,000 hits now on Spotify, but here's the thing, which made me think they, they love it as a as a sort of a bit of a party play song. Music's so subjective, which take you into a whole another area. So your version of, you know, Agadoo is yeah. someone else's version of, you know, let's party Friday night, which is someone else's version of something else. Just to finish on that, I mean, it's absolutely subjective to the point where I was horrified the other day. Someone said they didn't like the Beatles and didn't think they were any good. I mean, is that yeah, yeah. is that are you allowed to say that out loud? No, that person's in prison now. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. What a risk taker, a maverick, a maverick. <laughs> sits outside the fold, John. So, sits outside the fold. Look, let's stop talking about uh, ourselves, John. Really, it's a very exciting time because today is a guest episode. And who is the curious cat we have on this week? Well, Simon, we have a very curious and interesting guest today. There's someone who's exceptionally skilled in data analysis and visualization. They've got a strong track record in transforming performance report- reporting cultures in large organizations. And this individual marries this with a doctorate in philosophy uh, from the University of Queensland. And he uses that background in critical thinking to help organizations and clients identify, define, break down big, complex problems and challenges. More importantly, though, he used to have a funk rock band together with his brother in their teenage years. <laughs> and I, re- they recently decided to cover Eurythmics classic Sweet Dreams 
And I heartily recommend this. We'll put the YouTube link in the show notes. It's absolutely fantastic. Please welcome our guest, the man who puts Aristotle into analytics. It's Dr. Marco Motta. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Marco, what's caught your eye this week? Well, thanks. Thanks for the marvelous introduction. Uh, what caught my eye this week? Again, I think you guys already talked about it. Uh, uh, AI, and unfortunately, that's uh, that's the flavor of the month. Really, what particularly caught my eye this week was a couple of articles. One from a friend of mine, and another one from someone I didn't know about uh, around ethics of artificial intelligence and how there's a definitely a lot of talk happening at the moment around what what's you know how is uh, artificial intelligence going to be married with ethics and morality you know how how are we going to guarantee that this stuff is not going to do harm to humans and i think it's a really interesting problem because one of the things that that one of the articles highlighted is that we don't actually have one position on what morality is or what ethics is you know there's a bunch of different types of you know moralities that you can adopt whether it's you know utilitarians or deontological like there's lots of different ways to skin that cat and i guess the point there was that ultimately we we haven't really done when you say mandating creativity is i think you know we should mandate a little bit more and we should fund a little bit more some of the research in this there's been you know, for a long time has been a little bit, you know, something that happens in universities in reality has a lot of impact on, you know, our ideas and stuff that comes out of those universities, you know, have a lot of impact on how we think in real life. And so I think there's definitely an opportunity there to do to do more of that in the future, I think. Now, I like this. I've, I've never actually thought, well, what is morality? So, one, great. We're, we're already having a, a good Hopefully question. Hopefully we don't talk about it too much now, but yeah. <laughs> no, but what, what a big question. We're usually talking about cats stuck up trees and stuff like that. Thank you, Marco. <laughs> lifting, lifting this Well, you know, sa- saving here. it or not would be already an ethical or a moral decision. Oh, uh, yeah. We could put it in a box next, couldn't we, then, and decide whether it's alive Correct. or dead. But, but <laughs> isn't, right. isn't, this, isn't this one of those things, John, I guess we we've talked in this space so much whereas someone says something and there's no there's no idea out that space that my version of morality might be different to yours absolutely like think yeah. around yeah and also we spoke a few episodes back the spirit of cricket between this piece between australia and um england at the moment and you said what's the spirit yeah well how and no one knows you know it's whatever that person says it is so yeah I, that's that's sort of i'm gonna dive more into what is morality a little bit more because uh, I reckon I can get away with a bit more stuff. <laughs> I might hold back as well because I, I suddenly just realised just this wonderful mashing together around AI, which is obviously machine learning. It's massive amounts of data that's going to be processed and that's what it's operating off, coupled with this idea of philosophy. I mean, you're in an absolute sweet spot here, aren't you, Marco? This is this is something I don't that know really if does. I am. Come it's a, <laughs> but, but this absolutely it feels comes more into like a thinking. bit of a crunchy moment. But yeah, it was all, I, <laughs> to be explored. I, I think, yeah, no, it's. I mean, it's definitely. Um, one of my old colleagues at UQ, David Douglas, is actually working on this at the moment. I'm, I'm following him closely because I think you know I don't you know I, I don't particularly uh, work in that field in the past, but it, it is an interesting kind of 
uh, there's an interesting point to be made about some of the ideas we talk about, and you were saying that, you know, uh, don't really have a clear or a shared understanding among all of us. And this article that I was reading on LinkedIn was interesting because it said that, you know, at, at a basic level, different cultures also have different ideas on morality, like, and, you know, that's quite clear also with, you know, rise of China, you know, we're starting to see, we always think of the world as a Western world. There's obviously other people out there and China's becoming so much bigger that we'll need to kind of think about what, you know, what what's their take on this. And there's there's a lot of uh, discussion from their point of view around where we talk about freedom and, and self-efficacy. They talk about compliance and, you know, the, the and, and tradition. So th- there's very, very different type of like, understanding of this of, of this concept of these large kind of questions that really there's there's a lot to unpack and, and it's not simple and we need more people unpacking it, I think. Now I was listening to someone interview Neil deGrasse Tyson recently, you know, the astrophysicist on a uh, podcast. And I think the final question was, hey, Neil, is there intelligent life out there? And he went straight to this point. He said, well, how do we measure intelligent life? We're assuming that us as humans, we're the intelligent life. So what we're trying to measure is, is there someone who's as smart as us? That's like assuming other things that we know not of don't have intelligence or like a tree doesn't have. So if they're helping around, well, what is intelligence? It's all viewed through our lens. So all of a sudden you go, yeah, what's the shared view on what intelligence is in the universe? That's what I love about philosophy. Like I think it's just really that at, at the crux is really that ability to take some other point of view that is not the common point of view. It's like intelligence, we all know what it is. Actually, we don't. Uh, let's think about what would it be to be intelligent in another way. And the same for like, you know, in data analysis, a lot of the time, that's kind of some of the work that I do is like, oh, we think we all know what this problem is all about. Well, actually, if we look at the data, there's other stuff that's going on. How do we reconcile the two and kind of open up to new questions and new possibilities? Interesting there as well, uh, Marco, that you said data and not data. So can we just clear this up once and for all, just for this episode? Do you all say data in Australia and we all say data <laughs> we do. in the UK? Is but you, that right? made up, you guys made up this language, so I don't know who wins here. <laughs> it's like you say tomato, I'm Italian I to say begin tomato. With, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> right. I'm going to say data for this episode, right? Right. Moving on. Uh, we're going to come back to that, undoubtedly, uh, Marco, so we'll uh, I'll come back and explore it a bit more. But for now, just for our listeners, we've got people listening from different places. Where are you in the world today and uh, what can you see out your window? I am uh, in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, it's a really sunny day, actually. It's been uh, it's, uh, it's getting a bit darker at the moment. Uh, I can't see much out the window because my, uh, my I can see mostly my neighbour's roof, but there's a few trees and, and a very nice blue sky out there. Now, Marco, where you might have been one of those dinner parties and you, you don't know that many people and you're, you're sitting down together and the conversation can be a little bit stilted, a little bit, uh, yeah, where are you from? Oh, okay, do you go to school? Uh, all that type of stuff, a little bit boring. You sort of think, oh, I don't know if this is the best seat. So John and I thought, imagine you're at a dinner party. What's some bigger questions we could ask that maybe gets the conversation flowing a little bit better and you, you dive down. Now, our budget's a little bit lower this week. So just got a couple of bottles of Yellowtail uh, Shiraz, <laughs> okay? But, uh, you yeah, know, they'll do, they'll do. So now, first question. 
Hi, Marco. Nice to meet you. What's giving you joy at the moment? So, uh, look, at the moment, uh, you know, now now I don't know if this is uh, as exciting as the rest of our conversation, but I'm really happy about, you know, that where, where my, my new business is going. I started a business relatively recently. My old consulting business is, uh, it's really given me a lot of satisfactions with clients and, and stuff like that. But also at the same time, you know, the ability to balance with the needs of my family. I've got got five kids, which is, uh, you know, crazy and, and exciting in itself. And, you know, really seeing them growing up to get together with my work, together with, uh, you know, our, our life as a family has been, has been really great. <laughs> I just, as you were, I can't even <laughs> fathom that. Yeah. So. As you were saying that, Marco, <laughs> I'm always reminded of the comment friend said, as, as we all start to have kids, they said, look, one is a, one is a child, two is a family, three is a zoo. I'm just wondering what five is. <laughs> That's a, I don't I don't have a fun quip for that, but I think you know five is really uh, you know it's that place where you've pretty much given up on controlling most of your life and you're just kind of going with the flow, which is not a bad state to be. If someone like me who loves to control every little detail and stuff, it's really been a a great kind of shock to the system and one that I probably needed to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh outside of then the new business and obviously the, the big family life what sort of hobbies are you involved in right now clearly we mentioned the fact that there's some music that runs through your through your yeah, veins look but, uh, what are you losing <laughs> yourself in right now music is definitely something that i do enjoy is because it's so kind of like uh, you know you don't have to prepare yourself you just sit down and do something for a bit at the moment uh uh, one of the things that I've been kind of experimenting with, and now I'm going to go a little bit geeky here, it's uh, slash chords on the piano. I don't know if you uh, basically just like I love the idea that you can change you can change one of the like just a bass note on a chord, and it actually kind of changes the sound of it. It's 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 kind of weird. I don't know if I mean this is this is going to sound crazy, but I don't know if I'm going to maybe I should demonstrate that to you. It's uh, it's gonna it's gonna be a bit. Uh, we'll see if we, we maybe we'll cut it out of the show, but <laughs> I'll try Go and give it. it a try. See if it see if it sounds any good. So basically, yeah, I'll try and take the <laughs> mic with me a little bit. See where it goes. Um, basically, you could have a normal chord like a I don't know a C, and it sounds a bit like that. It's just a natural C with a bass of C. If you put a bass yep. of E on it, this is the natural. This has got the bass of E, which makes it sound a bit different. And then if you go to an F, this is a natural F. And then you put a G to it, and it's going to sound a bit sustained and, and kind of unexpected. So it sounds like this. So it sounds very churchy, I guess. But um, the point I'm trying to make is that just with one changing one note on a chord, you can actually change the whole chord and make make the music going, as opposed to the the natural way of doing it, which is like using the melody and the top. I've got a question. I come from a musical family, but I, I guess went in other areas with my creativity. What's the chords when you change for maybe someone you don't know about this, or which might be a bunch of people? What's the chord? Like how many notes is it together? You said you change one note. So what's so, the 
It's the numerical so here. Um, a chord is basically like if you think about a scale, which is like the, from the first note of the scale to the seventh note of the scale, each scale has got seven notes. Okay. Um, the chord is the first, the third, and the fifth. That's the, well, without okay. thinking about jazz, which uh, basically broken the whole idea of chords, naturally <laughs> a chord is just first, third, and fifth of the of the scale but then and the bass usually is the first is the is the you know the your first yeah. note but when you add different basses you're actually adding different kind of yeah. notes of the same scale but in it, it, that kind of gives it a whole movement to it sorry now we've geeked out yeah. enough but i guess yeah. that you know <laughs> i like how different nuances and different things can can make things unexpected i guess that's something that you know Gives me joy, I guess, as well, uh, and and I can lose myself for hours, kind of trying these little things. I like that. I think there's a metaphor there about the fact that one one tiny note change can actually make a significant difference to something, and that you could extend that into other areas of life, couldn't you? If you just change this one small thing, it could actually make, which might seem quite nuanced, it can have a significant impact. And so I like that. I might use that about the idea of changing a note in the chords and seeing the effect it has. I think you could do a you could do a keynote with your piano, like seriously, <laughs> like take that in. Like there's a I'm I'm seeing they're quite transfixed. That's that's wonderful. Now I'm going to dive into our next question, and you're our first guest that's ever played music at a dinner party. So hey, entertainment and good conversation. But your dinner's gone cold. Uh, who or what a yeah, guest? Yeah. So so take sausages back, please. Who or what inspires you right in this oh, moment? I'm going to be I'm going to be again super boring here, but really, my family, especially my wife at the moment, is really inspiring. It sounds, you know, it's, she she's a nurse. She cares for everyone. She always, you know, she looks after us uh, and and people at work and she comes back but she struggles with her own you know uh with her own things but she's always kind of really positive about life and really supportive i think i really couldn't have started this business without her saying hey you know go for it i'm i'm someone that's always kind of you know again i'm an analyst you know you can imagine how much i analyze and, and a philosopher so you can imagine how much I, I think about this stuff before doing anything but you know, I I do have a I also love getting stuff done, and that's something that's I do have this duality in me. But she's always super supportive and has been there all the way to really keep me grounded. You know, keep me thinking about you know what what's next, what's the next thing, how can you uh, make this something that can work, and and you know, really just being a great cheerleader. I like that. I think that's that goes with the quote that behind every great man. Is a woman rolling her eyes? No, that's the. Well, you know, there's that too. <laughs> she she supported um, everything except when I decided to pick up and start playing recorder. She really did not like that. Yeah, fair call. Yeah, there's there's got to be limits. <laughs> no one supports that. No, no I got, love it. I've but got, anyway, <laughs> I've got a question now here, Marco, which uh, could take us on quite a tour. But uh, what big question are you wrestling with right now? Now, we've been here before, Simon, haven't we, where we've asked people who study philosophy a big question. 
So it took us to the end of the show. So, <laughs> so Marco, yeah, what big five words I wonder or less. how we're going to go here, but hey, let's give it a crack and see where we land. Let's see if we land this one. Tell us if something like what dishwasher should I buy next or something like that. Yeah, I, I, should, I should do that, should Throw us a curveball. <laughs> Fire away. Fire Look, away. I think. Uh, let, let's start. Let's start a little. Let's take it a little bit uh, from the beginning. I think. Yeah, Here we I know, go. I know. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You guys started this. Joking. It's your fault. So here we go. <laughs> um, look, right. at the moment, I think one of the things that when I started looking, when I started working in data and analytics, because I haven't always worked in data and analytics, I used to do other stuff before that. When I started working data analytics, one of the things that I really kind of I was really interested in is seeing how a lot of people were talking about data as in as if data was facts, things that you know were undoubtable, and there was something hard and kind of you know objective about this. And then you know there's all these other fluffy stuff, politics, interpretations, all of these things that just sit in a realm that's really bad, and we don't want to kind of deal with that. Me coming from a philosophical background. The first thing that, you know, I started thinking about is like, well, there's all these data that are really interesting facts, but what's a fact? Like, and to a certain extent, you know, that kind of, when you think about this this way, you start thinking about what's truth, you know, what's the nature of truth, subjective truth, objective truth, you know, all that sort of stuff. Very handily in my, during my my time at university and, and uh, doing my PhD, I wrote I wrote an article on uh, subjective truth, clear perceptions, objective truth uh, based on Descartes' uh, philosophy. So that the old guy used to say, you know, I think therefore I am. There's a really interesting point to be made there. Not so much about I think therefore I am, which everyone kind of thinks means I've discovered something true without needing for you know external support of that truth. I've discovered something objective. In fact, it actually doesn't mean that. When you dig a little bit deeper, the point of that is to say there is a subjective truth that I can find within myself, but that it's not enough for everyone else. So when I... I'm going to be too deep here, but the point being this... Yeah, no, go for it. Subjectively, I understand something. I understand that I exist. There's something kind of really important about that intuition, but there's nothing, that intuition is not enough to support all the rest, to support the fact that you exist, that other people exist, that there are things outside of me, that there are objective, there are things that are objectively true. In fact, I can't even, like, there's, Descartes makes a point after that, just soon after that, that a lot of people ignore, that's basically saying, when I think about this, I'm thinking about it, and I realize that the act of thinking about the fact that I exist is in itself makes, you know, grounds that existence. But when I stop thinking about that, there's nothing that actually grounds that. So I need to be thinking about, you know, me all the time to be able to exist. And so he says, because to a certain extent, I could be, I could be fooled about logic itself. I could be fooled about the fact that, you know, the fact that I exist means that I exist, that, you know, the truth is, there's some truth in that, in that objective fact that I exist. So as long as I think about it, there's almost a performative way of, of making that true. 
But that's not true for everyone objectively in a logical way. And so the only way that ultimately um, Descartes can ground that truth is to, you know, the, to actually referring back to God, to say that there has to be a God that guarantees that whatever I'm thinking is ultimately correct for everyone else, which is quite different from what we think about Descartes and how he started the whole Enlightenment movie, movement. There's a, there's a pretty stark difference there. And I think the point that I'm trying to make is insofar as, you know, we need something external to guarantee objectivity, and insofar as we don't know, because to a certain extent, you know, we don't really believe, not everyone believes in God anymore. There's no kind of, you know, access to this. You, we kind of need to accept there is a certain subjectivity and a certain lack of objectivity in all the facts that we're looking at. And so the next step in that philosophical journey becomes interpretation. You know, how we interpret facts actually starts to make those facts what they are. There's a whole point about the Schrodinger's cat as well, but we'll we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> oh, we, we love a bit of Schrodinger's wow. cat. On I don't know show. about you, yeah. Simon, but that's uh, I was really concentrating. I've burnt some calories there just listening in. Yeah. <laughs> what, what? One thing, Marco. Just but just on that, the idea of subjective truth and, and, and what's fact, scientific fact though. There are there are things that are fact. Is that not true in the in the realms of science and what we might perceived to be things uh, that uh, sort of inform our day-to-day life and experience, such as gravity, gravity. And, and, and stuff like this. There is fact, is there? Or is, or is that still is that now up for debate? Might I float off my chair at any moment? Well, I might do. <laughs> <laughs> you did last week. That's true. I didn't want to say anything, but you did. <laughs> There's a point to be made. Hey, we're, about, so we're really going down a rabbit hole here. We? we have, we have. And I think, oh, it's a beautiful <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> it's a good... That's a good rabbit. The point is this. You have to somehow measure the fact that you're not floating, right? So let's go to that point of the Schrodinger's cat, which I think it's quite poignant here, and I think it makes a lot of sense because it it really puts the whole conversation around the fact that facts are, to a certain extent, require someone looking at them to even exist, to someone observing that. But that observer actually has an interaction with that fact. And so that observer is actually changing that fact a little bit. The whole quantum theory, and I, you know, I love a bit of quantum theory. I've, I've, I've done my own kind of research and I've, I've started my, my uni days, uh, you know, studying physics. My dad's a physicist. So we, we have a long tradition of, of, of talking about this stuff at dinner table. Yeah, imagine oh, your dinner it's party. A, it's yeah. a mess, to be honest. <laughs> this is just the imperative. It's yeah. a mess. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, yes, you can say there are facts like the, you know, gravity. But when you start thinking about gravity, for example, it's an interesting point to be made about gravity about the fact that we don't actually even know how gravity works. We think gravity could be even explained as a kind of like a, a, a dip in space time as opposed to an actual force. So to a certain extent, it's like when you're thinking about gravity, you might, you, you're saying that you're going down in a straight line, but if you're thinking about it from a space and time sort of point of view, you're actually just traveling on a straight line, in, in you know, parallel to a big ma- mass that's kind of like 
just bringing a whole space-time field within itself. So, yeah, sorry, I'll stop there, I think. <laughs> we do We do have to – I do want to, for us to move into a bit more of your work, actually, but can I just say as well, Marco, that gravity is a dip in space-time is my new hashtag, and I'm going to get a T-shirt with that on because that sounds really cool. <laughs> Gravity's just a dip it is. You, should, you should see there's a, there's a cool experiment uh, on YouTube. Say that it's, one. it's beautiful. Either, <laughs> with balls kind of going around. It's amazing. <laughs> on gravity, if it's a dip in space time, I think in the visual, we're sort of going on like this. We've fallen in the dip, which is why we're stuck down. Pretty much. You is can that, think about so that that, that way, that except the- it's in four dimensions, Simon. Forgetting a few <laughs> dimensions, yes. He always forgets the fourth dimension. That's Simon all over. I do, I do. Just never thinks, My wife's always never saying, Simon, so. have you thought of the fourth dimension? <laughs> oh no, sorry. Okay. <laughs> that is beautiful. I think I, I think there's definitely <laughs> a lot to talk about there. And I think the point being, you know, it doesn't matter doesn't matter how you look. I, I love to troll people that say, you know, the, the Earth is flat. So it's like, yeah, it is flat in a non-Euclidean geometry when you start thinking about it as, you know, a straight line being a – the fastest path between two points being a curved line, yet the Earth is actually flat being curved. <laughs> this now, is, this just is, to wrap this out is the dinner less, party. Well, this is less a dinner party. This is more a banquet. I have to say this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've been served eight courses while this has been conversations going on. Now we've just got the final, which is the little espressos to sort of you know, finish out the night. How would you describe what you do and or if you sit in the middle of three or four things, what are they? And let's talk in a professional capacity. Or no, maybe a yeah, professional capacity. Yeah, so look, at the moment, I really, I'm really sitting at the intersect between data like technical data like data and data wrangling and and being able to use a lot of the big data sets that organizations have as well as communication and data visualization so that the, the part that i've chosen for myself is really that intersect between the real technical stuff the real technical data engineering and data wrangling which i find interesting but also sometimes very dry and the part that i find that not many people are able to do because they don't have both the technical and their kind of communication background that i I kind of ended up having a little bit and it's really about visualizing that data you know putting it out there for people to be able to consume in a way that makes sense for them it's really really an interesting path in the sense that it's not and that's the point about facts and interpretation when you start giving people data in a visualized sense all of a sudden because you want them to consume it because you want them to to look at the data and make sense of it you're actually the act of turning that into a visualization is already interpreting something parts of the data that are important versus parts of the data that are not important i can make things you know red and blue and orange and and it will provide a different kind of pathway for people to access that data and i think i think traditionally the point was to try and make the data as objective as possible i'm actually going trying to go against the grain on that one i think the best thing that you can do to be objective about things is to say this is an interpretation i think it's the best interpretation we have given all the data points that we have but we might find other data points and they might change our interpretation. That's okay. We're on this journey together. And part of the work that I've been doing is to really do, I like to kind of wrangle the data. I like to do the visualization, but I really like to do workshops 
at the end of that process to bring a lot of people together and say, what do you think about this data? Look, you know, now that you can see it, does it make sense? What do you understand of it? And that's the part of the process that I enjoy the most. That's the intersect that I really enjoy. Just that, and Marco, as you're saying that, the interpretation, uh, this is great. Depends what question you've asked, does it? Yeah. And it's d- like d- deciding on the interpretation that you put forward. You, you really want to talk about the Schrodinger's cat, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, I know the answer. It is dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did you kill it? No. <laughs> Poor cat. If you've just tuned in, you're wondering what's Schrodinger's cat, like you haven't listened to previous episodes, can you take us through that quickly, Mark? Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I can do it justice. I hope you guys did. Maybe, Actually, John. I don't, I don't know if you can do it quickly. I'm no, going to go to John. Do okay, so. going to do it quickly. Uh, the idea there is that it was a cat is in a box, and we don't know if it's alive or dead, and the only way we can find that out. So at that moment when it's in the box with the lid closed, it can be either alive yeah. or dead. It could be in two states. And it's only through the opening the box and the act of observation, as Marco touched on a moment ago, we observe it, then it becomes one of those states. It is alive. We see it alive or we see it dead. So while the box is closed, it's the idea that uh, light can be either a wave or a particle. It can be in two different states. Would that be a sort of layman's interpretation, Marco? I know there's a lot more you could go on it, but that was the kind of thing. You need to observation. ask my dad, but yeah, that's that's probably where that's probably where <laughs> yeah. I would land there. I think there was yeah, some not- <laughs> there's some nuclear thing involved in an atom that will you know might let a <laughs> a photon out. But anyway, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I should just say that I've always fancied doing quantum facilitation. And it was my idea that I was just going to leave a team in a room and say, look, I'm going to go now because if I observe this, I'm going to affect the outcome. And I just go off for three hours and have a coffee. That's it. That sounds pretty awesome. If you can make a career out of it, just give me a call. I'll join your consultancy. (laughs) The quantum facilitators. So, Marco, as you know, the Occupational Philosophers was born of this desire to explore curiosity, creativity, imagination, the interplay between these with some philosophy thrown in. And I'm very pleased to say you're throwing in a good chunk of philosophy here, which is very exciting for us. I just want to start off with that about your the fact that you do have a doctorate in philosophy and you're working with data. Very specifically, how does that experience or education in philosophy actually feed into the work that you do today? What's the obvious connections there in the day-to-day? There's probably no obvious connection, but I tend to try and make that connection around critical thinking. I think that's really the crux of it. I think we talked a little bit, we touched a little bit on that at the beginning. Really, a lot a lot of the problem of philosophy is to keep some of those questions alive, some of the questions that kind of tend to become a little bit sclerotic around, you know, how, how some problems become like we we think that we've already solved them, like the problem of morality or like the problem of what is good or like the problem of what is true or what's a fact. These questions that seem deceptively simple, but then when you kind of scratch the surface, you'll find a lot more questions and a lot more uncertainty. And so that's really what I like to bring about in my practice, but also what I like to bring to data and analytics. A lot of the time in organizations, you find that people think they know what their business is about. They know what they're what they're doing day to day because they have to, you know, to a certain extent, they have to kind of deal with with the normal 
with normal life and get on with it. But when they have a problem, they get stumped because their interpretations of what they're doing all of a sudden is kind of breaking down and they don't they don't have the instruments or the tools to try and disentangle that. And so that's really what I like to bring. You know, the the, the data is a is an amazing data is an amazing tool to find facts and you know evidence to then build on solutions to problems and the critical thinking part is to really analyze the evidence all the evidence not just a little bit to go and find more evidence to to get the problem a more precise understanding of the problem so and is that then again i was thinking philosophy you've got epistemic which is how do we know what we know and so that i can see how that can come in because your data can inform somebody saying this is what we know here are the facts here's the here's the numbers as it were and then you've got the ethical aspect of it which you're touching on earlier as well which is okay then well how do we how do we interpret this data what's a what's the right way that we should bring this data forward what story should we tell what's the moral driver here as well that feeds in as it sounds like both of those elements do feed into your thinking absolutely and and ultimately you know there's the beauty of philosophy and what I found really refreshing uh, about philosophy is there's ultimately no right way. And that's the point of philosophy, not because there isn't a right way. There's a definitely a logical way and a, and a way to like structure the investigation so that other people can contribute to it as well. Uh, it's not a pursuit of something crazy that's out of your head. It, it is a, a structured way of thinking about things. But there's also no right answer. Like we're not looking for an immediate solution, because a lot of these problems have been going on for hundreds of years. In fact, anything in philosophy, and I mean, I'm probably not telling you anything new, but anything in philosophy that does find a a more steady, a more kind of reliable answer, like science, then it becomes a science. It stops being philosophy, Um, whereas it kind of starts as as a philosophical undertake. How do you think people in organizations, and you've worked in some you know, very large organizations, how do you think people manage that, that piece around, well, there is no one perfect answer when is there, from what am I looking at it from the outside in, we're looking for the, we're looking for the, the unicorn, we're looking for the one bit that will, yes. How do you find people manage that space? It really depends on the organization and the culture of the organization. I do have to say that the most successful and innovative organizations are the ones that can manage that uncertainty correctly. And it's really uncertainty is the key. And a lot of people talk about it. Uncertainty is the trademark of of our age to a certain extent, the chain that, you know, all, all the kind of things that we talk about all the time pace of change is, is frantic. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know the breakthrough um, that, that are going to happen tomorrow in technology that are going to change the way we work. Uh, I was talking about ChatGPT before. Like, I'm always surprised about how I'm, – I'm surprised at the moment how well it fits in my workflows. I, I use it a lot for weird things like writing my social media or even preparing for this podcast. There's so <laughs> many ways that you can – or debugging I my code. So. I, you know what I mean? Like it's like th- there's so many ways that you can use it and it's not – but that wasn't there yesterday, you know, and all of a sudden we have to adapt. And I think I've been thinking a lot about what I've been – there used to be a, an Italian philosopher that used to talk about weak, weak thought, um, Giovanni Vattimo. He, he's not a very famous one, but – I didn't quite understand it at the time, but what I'm kind of coming to at the moment is the idea that perhaps we need to 
become more accustomed to that idea that there are not strong truths, but there are there are weak truths, things that are okay for the moment and that we are building on, things that are not, you know, that are working for the moment. But and so in a lot of organizations it is about getting to that weak truth. It's not, you know, it, it may not be the silver bullet that you're looking for, but it will be something that will get us through to the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. Now, a few years ago, we most of us were introduced to the notion via American politics, alternate facts. Okay, now was there when this came through? Was there a bit of a chuckle in the in the philosophy community? Going, oh, well, well, there's always been alternate facts. It's just the the lay people say the media all of a sudden go, well, hang on, there's no alternate facts. So, <laughs> is, was was there a bit of a chuckle? Possibly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I think, you know, all facts are alternative facts. You know, there's nothing. Yeah. Um, there, there's nothing, you know, the, the point is, and I, I'm actually struggling with this polarization myself because I'm, I find that, you know, I always complain about my YouTube feed because <laughs> one week I'm looking at something and I'm interested in something and all of a sudden uh, my YouTube feed is, is kind of, you know, bombarded by alt-right or, you know, super left stuff. And it's like, you know, it's because I'm interested in both points of view. It's not – and yeah. so it becomes like, you know, you either have to be on one side or the other side. I actually find that in all, in all points of views, including some of the weird – alt right point of view there is some truth and so you know there is some truth in in the you know in the left point of view uh sometimes there is some wrong in there and and so i find that in our world we're really again weak thought weak through weak weak truths we want to find strong truths and strong thought but that might not be the best way yeah and again, we'll, as we get to the not so serious business advice piece, and we're talking about teams and organizations, that would be certainly one of the things I would see, Marco, is that we need to have beliefs loosely held. And too often that you have teams and that who find themselves in quite entrenched positions. And it, it doesn't allow them to manage that uncertainty or make their way. They're going for control and certainty. And it just, un- you just see it start to undo them. There's a, there's a whole narrative around why Kodak failed, you know, the, the old stories about, you know, and I'm looking at Toyota today and I, I love my Toyota car because it's very reliable, but, you know, like you, you wonder whether they're going to transition to to the right technology soon. So, yeah, absolutely, there's a point to be made there. The other the other thought I had is um, what were you sort of saying, hey, look, there's stuff on the left that I can kind of see and there's stuff on the right that I can kind of see has something to it. You'd be rubbish on Twitter. Oh, absolutely! Oh, I'll, <laughs> what I'll are you talking about? Everyone, what? Yeah, the sensible middleman. Yeah, what's this about? You and your philosopher, mate. Find an entrenched position, right. Marco, and stick to it. Come what may, whatever comes forward as an alternative set of beliefs, stick with it. Double down. And I love, yeah. I love that 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 point is made by a lot of people that you know talk about science, and it, I love that science is like touted as the ultimate truth, whereas you know the tenet of science is that. To be scientific, a theory has to be falsifiable. And it's like, which means it has to be, it may be wrong at some point. Why do we hold these truths so dear? No no scientist would subscribe to that. I think that's one of the other things I would see as well is uh, that scientific method where you actually encourage people to say, look, you should be going in wanting to be disproven because that's how progress comes about, is you put forward that hypothesis in effect based on whatever you have at that moment but you're there 
desperately hoping it gets overturned to become something better or, or, or you become more enlightened through that process. There we go. We're really going off on it now, Simon. You've mentioned your interest in painting and music. I know we've talked, spoken about this before. How do your, and something, you know, I have a little bit of a passion in the, that sort of the artistic space. How do these artistic pursuits uh, influence your approach to interpreting data and therefore crafting business solutions, which you're, you know, in the business of? Yeah, I think I've talked. I've talked a lot about uh, my passion for philosophy, and I've talked a little bit about the, the 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 slash chords and how that little note can change things. And and I think often I see that in data a little bit. But I think what I really like one of the things that really helps me in a practical sense is that is is painting, and I'm pretty rubbish at painting, but I do enjoy it in so far as I enjoy figuring out combination of colors um, that that speak to me, and they're kind of like it's funny because when I was younger, I used to I used to draw a lot in black and white. Never use colors. I I kind of didn't like the idea of color. I would uh, I'd love lines, but I didn't like I I didn't think I was good at putting colors together. And then later in life, as you often do, you kind of like <laughs> um, become the opposite of what you wear. And I started really enjoying that process of like finding colors that work finding colors that vibrate finding colors that that tell a story and that's really that's being so good in terms of like the data visualization work that I that I do because color is the main kind of way one of the main ways to communicate in data visualization there's a whole color theory there's a lot of discussion about color i'm not going to bore you here with color theory i i really you know as you might start to to know about me I kind of end up researching everything and so like I tend to end up into this rabbit hole where it's two months and I've read every single thing there is to read about color theory now and I'm asking people do you know more about this so I can't seem to find enough about it um so uh, there's definitely a lot to talk about there but it's something that I really enjoy and I think you know um there's a lot of interesting artists that I that, that obviously do that abstract art it's really something that I enjoy doing. And that practical kind of point of, you know, putting colors together, it's really something that's been therapeutic to an extent, but also interesting and, and, and exciting. Uh, and um, is, is red always the thing that's bad when you're doing data visualization? If it's red and big and bold, they go, oh, we don't want that. We don't want red. No one, no one wants red. Um, actually, red is not red. You know, talking about color theory, um, the red really does evoke an emotion, and we all know that. In data visualization, is definitely something that is frowned upon for a bunch of reasons, including people that are colorblind that can't really see red and green effectively. So a lot of if you look at some of the tools that are used, a lot of them are steering towards orange and blue as positive, negative. I've actually started using my my, my personal favorite, a teal and pink. That's that's my that's what <laughs> I've been using quite a lot in my visualizations. It's it you know there's there's a lot again there's a lot to talk about, but yeah, definitely every color has got its own its own way of expressing and it, it an idea and and. Kandinsky's got a lot to talk about. Rothko's got a lot to talk about in in this in this sense. So yeah, so we, we we're standing on 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 big shoulders. <laughs> Moving on to just this idea about data analysis. I mean, it does seem to be you know the antithesis to creativity. On the face of it, you go data analyst, 
creative. It just seems sort of apart. But as you've brought them together and maybe working with the teams, do you find that bringing data liberates curiosity in teams or creativity? Do they? Does it give them just another perspective or lens to look through, and that opens up their minds to stuff? Or how do you see it work in terms of that curiosity? and teams and organizations getting creative off the back of the data. Yeah, at the end of the process, it does. I find, though, that there's a bit of a funny joke going around the circle around the the five stages of uh, uh, data analysis grief or data visualization grief. A lot of it, it's around the fact that when you do show people data, they have a series of reactions that are quite predictable the first reaction is always you know denial that that doesn't look right uh, that you you know that that's not what that's not what I, my business is about um you got it all wrong and then you know there's they, they have to slowly come to the realization that uh, you know actually yeah we need to accept that that's how things are and we we can now you know we don't need to hide the problem we can actually look at the problem and use it as a platform to improve that's not all organizations manage to get there but when they do i think it's 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 worthwhile and it liberates that creativity around okay we now know the problem what do we do about it this is not the data analysis the data analyst sort of job the data analyst job is to kind of show you what the problem is and some range of potential solutions but then it's up to the business to figure out how to solve their problems. I'm going to do another U-turn here, which is, uh, I think lies into the nature of the way we've been or what we've been talking about. Everyone talks about AI is having its moment in the sun. So a couple of questions. How will what's what's the opportunity what's the danger will we be vaporized by our robot overlords <laughs> oh, I, lo- I love this question i recently had a well not so recently anymore but i i love having a um, a little spat on linkedin with someone about this kind of philosophical stuff and people just then eventually ignore me a bit i had <laughs> i had a point to, i think there's a point to be made about the, the the fact that a lot of people are saying ai is not conscious, uh, which I I certainly agree at this point. But part of the problem is that we don't know what it means for someone else that's not me to be conscious. And so it is very hard to really say that someone that speaks and and talk like a human, it's not somehow conscious. And so with that in mind, there's a whole sort of host of questions that come with that. It's like, can is an AI model like a human? Will it have you know, will it have ideas? Will it have um will it come to want to vaporize us eventually because we're bad for the planet or for whatever reason? You know, will will it come to its own conclusions about what humans are? And will those conclusions be valid? And and if not, you know, should should we turn it off? Is it ultimately about the the preservation of our species as opposed to truth and advancement or or whatever else we kind of you know imagine ourselves to be to be trying to do as humans as the the best species on the planet? <laughs> I don't know. So there, there's there's definitely a lot of questions there, and I and the spat was with um, Cassie Korotsov, who's a, a head of uh, data analysis at Google. So it wasn't I, I was definitely punching way above my weight. Small target. But, small target. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, I think I think the point is you don't know what's conscious if you don't know what consciousness is, and I don't think we've got a good answer just quite yet. 
if you think about some of the tests for what uh, for whether um, some something is human or AI, we don't know anymore. The old tests don't work. Some of the people that are trying to say, oh, we've got a test for when something's been written by ChatGPT, they've got a 50% success rate, which is basically just saying you're doing, you're you're tossing a coin. (laughs) You could have a 49% success rate and actually be worse to use the tool than not to use it (laughs) because you're getting more wrong than right. I was just thinking, Simon, maybe we could just get ChatGPT hosts to turn up and do this, couldn't we? No one would know. Well, I think that's, you should give it a crack. It can never yeah, be as we funny as give us. It a go. <laughs> See if we've got two sentient AI bots have got the same sort of uh, sense of humour. <laughs> I believe I believe that's been done though. I think a um a podcast has been produced recently with all with um chat GPT I mean with AI hosts, yeah. Wow. That's the right way to say it. Ooh, yeah. Okay. That's an experiment. So in my day, so you, you guys are on Max, the way out. Max <laughs> on the way yeah. out that's it that's it yeah who's on the way out with ai L- lawyers accountants podcast hosts you're on your way out the robots are coming for you so it's time for a thought experiment marco i've read the following by yourself which is i've always believed that skepticism and critical thinking are the pillars of insightful data analysis Challenging widely accepted beliefs and unearthing new evidence is what keeps us progressing. So our thought experiment is going to have you challenge some widely accepted beliefs, or some might call them urban myths. We want you to guess whether you think something is true or an urban myth. So let's play Busting Urban Myths. Put musical bit in there, Simon. I will read out a statement. And you have to say whether you think it's true or you want to bust that urban myth or bum for short. So say true if you think it's true or bum if you think it's an urban myth that you wish to bust. Okay. All right. So let's start. Watching TV up close is bad for your eyesight. Is that true or bum? Bum. I watch TV up close and my eyes are perfect. (laughs) Unlike mine. (laughs) No, we're we're all sitting here with glasses on. (laughs) Ding! That is correct. That is a bum. That's uh, that is uh, actually false. It may give you a headache, but there's no evidence to suggest it will damage your eyes if you sit very close to the screen. Very good. Well done, Simon. All right. For our next one, true or bum? You can boost your brain power by eating fish. I'd say bum, just because my grandmother used to say that all the time, and she's not a reliable source. <laughs> if you're listening, Nan, no. You're not reliable, so. But, so, but she is. Now, it was lovely, though. <laughs> okay. Well, that is. No, you're wrong. It is true. <laughs> so Nan is true. Nan's right. Was right. Nan's right. Yeah. Nan is right. So omega three vitamins found in oily fish have been proven to increase the flow of blood to your brain, which improves your ability to perform mental tasks. Mm, very good. So number three, Sounds like something Blackmore would say. Ha ha ha! Right, next one. You swallow eight spiders in your sleep over the course of your life. Is that true or bum? True in Australia, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. <laughs> and big ones as well. 
It's actually bum. I, I, I question the premise of this question. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we get. Here we go. Are yeah, you in? this is it. There is no such thing. Here we go. When you say yeah. sleep, is that REM sleep or is that? That's right. Uh, There's also that. <laughs> it's uh, it's bum. Our eight-legged friends are very sensitive to vibration. So whilst it's possible that someone may have swallowed a spider, it's more likely that snoring or movement would scare them away. So it is false. It's a bum. Okay, is this our true or bum? You'll catch a cold if you go outside with wet hair. This, this is a hard one. Again, my, my whole Italian family would say true. Um, I'd go for bum just because I do it all the time. <laughs> You're right. That is a bum. Okay, this is a huge myth peddled by, in part by its misleading name. There are studies that have found that we are more susceptible to colds in winter, but that could just be because we spend more time indoors near other people who might be infected rather than going outside with wet hair. And if you're in Australia, John, we spend a lot of time with wet hair because we swim in the glorious ocean. Whereas in Italy, my mom would used to say, don't go outside with your hair wet or you'll get pneumonia. So <laughs> just to sort of <laughs> ramp up the inf- the consequences. Correct. Not just the cold, full-blown pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> They've got very wet hair in Italy. So. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. So uh, we'll have a couple more, I think, Simon. Uh, this one here then, yes. Marco. Uh, red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. True or bum? I don't even know what that means. I say bum. <laughs> it's it's true. So that that rhyme was actually first recorded in the Bible, and it's apparently extremely accurate. What happens is that dust particles trapped in the atmosphere make the sky appear red, and when this happens in the evening, it means that high pressure is moving in, which will bring good weather. And in the morning, it means that the best has already passed, so bad weather's likely to come next. There you go. We're in the realms of physics. If the Bible says it. And the Bible. <laughs> well, we've got, we've got physics and the Bible. Well, there we've gone don't, into ultimate truths now, haven't we? That's don't a- start. You'll get us taken off air, Marco. Right, just don't say anything more. <laughs> See how in 50 years things have turned from like the opposite. <laughs> Been taken off air for mentioning the Bible. <laughs> Okay, now I think this will be uh, possibly our last one. Uh, cows napping is a sign that rain is on its way. Is that true or bum? I know nothing about cows, but let's say true. That is a bum. <laughs> there is no scientific evidence to suggest that cows lie down because they can sense when rain is coming. They're just tired. They're not trying to get a job as the next primetime weather presenter in their flock. Heard, <laughs> I should say. So there we go. Cool. So uh, not not a fantastic uh, showing there, uh, Marco. They're busting urban no, no, myths that, and challenging widely held beliefs. But uh, there we go. That was true or bum. So this section, we're going to be a little bit more rapid fire. But as we know, when we say rapid fire to someone with a doctorate in philosophy, there is no frame of reference for that term. So we shall see how we go. 
But this is our not-so-serious business podcast advice time. And what I'm thinking, I'd love to dive into a little bit more your area of work, which is around data. So let's let's say if you're a, a solo solopreneur or you're running, which is you know a, a lot of people, you're running a smaller business, and you're in charge of you're in charge of that you know that data. What's the data every solopreneur needs to be looking for? I think. Uh... You can definitely look at your, uh, you can start with your financial data, but also anything that you have on hand. It really depends on the kind of business you you run. The funny thing is that these days, everyone somehow will have gathered a whole lot of data without even trying to. Um, If you have, you know, um, if you have systems like Xero, if you have uh, an ERP kind of looking after your your processes, there will be data there to be to be mined and that's uh, to be to be used to make ultimately better decisions for your business. Uh, where where are the non obvious spots we should be looking for data? Because again, my thought, oh, hang on, this is a good question for me as well. What's the we, we you know we, let's say we do go to our you know our you know. Uh, our leads, let's say we go to our, you know, profit and loss and a few different pieces. Where's some other pieces we could be looking? Or some other places, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of data available out there um, that is helpful to a lot of businesses. There's data in Australia. We've got the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, That provides a lot of data that I use personally to do things like um, market research or understanding what you know audiences for uh, different areas. I recently um, used um, that to 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 try and figure out what's the best spot to put a coffee shop um, specific to you know to families with kids. So there, there's that kind of stuff that you can use. Um, there's also um, there's lots of places where you can find data. Uh, unfortunately. A lot of government departments have a lot of data and they try to share it, but they no no don't always do it very successfully. So to a certain extent, you need to you need to know where to look. But there's a there's a lot of interesting information out there about pretty much anything. So if you're curious, seek and you will find. Uh, leading into teams, Marco, we we work a lot with teams. Um, What's your thoughts on maybe changing tack towards the philosophy more for a moment? You said really it could be characterized by that critical thinking. How might you sort of liberate that critical thinking mindset within teams? How can you get teams to be more curious, whether that's look at data or just to slow down and and sort of be more critical in the way they think through some of their business problems? I think personally a lot of the problem in, in teams not being you know, not being curious and not being um, open to new ideas. It's really about the fact that a job is, you know, it, it's 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 connected with a lot more than, uh, or your teams, you know, it's connected with a lot more than just, you know, tr- trying to be curious. It's connected with money. It's connected with your family, uh, you know, uh, being able to, to eat the next meal or, or keeping your a roof on your head. So there's a lot of fear that's intrinsic to any job and in any teams. And so that's actually, I think a lot of, a lot of the time we kind of come with the assumption that, hey, um, if it's a fear-based workplace is because you made it. So, well, yes, but also there's a, there's a lot of fears and worries already coming in 
because it's a job, because it's a team, because we're trying to do something that's a bit harder than usual and we're worried that we're going to fail, that's totally natural. And I think so you actually have to do the opposite work uh, with the team. Like it's not it's not natural to be open and vulnerable. It's not in, in, a, in a team environment and in a work setting. So you need to be very deliberate about how you talk to people. You need to be very deliberate about how you make people feel safe. Um, I personally, you know, tend to come in with the, um, just, just try to be as, as myself as possible, trying to be as, as, as open as possible and just trying to share as much information as as I have and letting people know that I'll probably just stuff up at some point. And I'd love to, to know, uh, because (laughs) that's how we grow and get better. And so the more vulnerable you are, the more open to that you are. The more also you support people and you tell them that, hey, um, you, you know, when they ask you for for leave, you don't question it. When you ask, they ask you for um, time off with the family, you you say yes all the time. Like it sounds like, you know, how do you run a business like that? But really, like people feel safe and empowered. I think the business runs itself um, to a certain extent and it runs a lot better than if everyone's afraid and if anyone's scared and if everyone thinks, what's this guy going to say this time, you know? That probably ties into that. I always have a question around leadership and I'm thinking uh, you're a leader of an organisation and might be hard to marry this notion of uh, we need a little bit more philosophy in the leadership team, uh, trying to sell that might you know might be a bit of a stretch. But how can leaders bring in a bit more of a philosophical outlook? Sort of uh, bring in some of the great attributes of, of philosophy. What might that look like, or where could they start? The best attribute of philosophy is that you can always be wrong, and there's nothing bad about that. Um, that's actually like the start of something better. Um, the start of questioning, you know, and finding something that's a little bit closer to the truth. And I think, uh, you know, it, again, I've, I feel that this is natural. You get put into a leadership position and what you think about yourself in a leadership position is, oh, people are going to look at me for answers and they're going to look at me to, um, to to know what to do. And sometimes that's true. In, in a crisis, that's true. People are going to look at you to navigate through that problem and sometimes in a crisis you're going to do you're going to have to make decisions that may not be true but they might just work in that situation but in all others in all other instances um it is it is more about being open to be wrong and and it's it's so hard because nobody likes like I say that today and then when someone points out that I was wrong you know there's a little part of me that just gets a bit upset inside and you got to you know you got to deal with that you know you got to deal with that and you got to say oh damn you know I was wrong but that's okay you know you it's part of it's part of that growth and it's part of making sure that people feel safe to point out that something didn't go quite right would you say then philosophers have a great degree of emotional intelligence? Would that be a modern day word to put overlay, or do those do they not match up with each other? I I I find that that word is thrown around so much that I don't even know yeah, what that's it really me asking. means. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's <laughs> let's let's put it like that. To an extent, philosophers that the philosophers that 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 I know. Are super awkward, and I don't know if you really like, you know, define them as emotionally intelligent. But to another extent, you could say that they don't. They probably don't take a lot of their 
intellectual challenge personally. They know it's just good business to be thinking, you know, to be challenged intellectually. And, and they love that conversation and they love the, the confront, like even, you know, the confrontation about two ideas that don't quite match up because they know that that's how, that's how you get better and that's how you find yeah as as you were saying that marco i just that thought two things one is um they they love that intellectual challenge and they're willing to be proven wrong and but they don't take it personally i think that's right And, and i wondered if it's for leaders it's that idea that they can be wrong there's a degree of humility that's needed on the part of of leaders um courage to ask the questions in the first place that might sort of you know take them and explore something maybe they didn't where they didn't want to go but then humble enough to listen to to the answers that start to emerge from the group maybe or from the organization getting towards the close we've got a rapid fire round now um, so I'm just going to ask uh, some questions straight off the bat. So what's one thing you couldn't do without in your life right at the moment? I'm going to sound super geeky here, but Tableau and Altrix are my favorite pieces of software and I, I love them. I, <laughs> I enjoy, I actually enjoy working with them. It sounds so disgusting, but that's where I'm at at the moment in my life. <laughs> um, they, they really make my life so much easier and they're just amazing. Data visualization with Tableau is great and Altrix just lets me do some crazy stuff with data that I wouldn't really be able to do in any other way. <laughs> We have never had anyone answer that way. So well done, Marco. We're our first <laughs> full-blown I nerd. Expe- <laughs> I'm expecting to, you know, to, to push boundaries here. <laughs> you know, not your wife, not your children, piece of software. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. love it. <laughs> now, we are building the Occupational Philosophers Manigesto. <laughs> what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included? I want to say the principle of paradoxical precision um, the the more precisely you state a fact, the more interpretation it invites. Um, I think that's a perfect conversation starter for like a philosophical cocktail party. Maybe, maybe that's our next our next catch up. <laughs> Love it. Is there a book we should be reading? I, I'd say two books. I can't, I can't just tell you one. Um, if you're really into data analysis and visualization, and I think uh, someone asked me for a couple of, of suggestions uh, before this program, um, one one in particular that I love is Makeover Monday. I think it's an amazing book if you're interested in um, talking in, in looking at practical ways to to improve your way of visualizing data. And to be honest, these days, even if you do it in Excel, um, you're visualizing data. So you know, go, go and find the best practice of that because it's going to help you a lot. So Makeover Monday by Andy Kreebel and uh, Eva Murray. And if you really don't care about data at all and you're just listening really bored to this, um, another book that I really enjoyed recently reading uh, is Sapiens uh, by um, Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, I just love, he argues that human the human evolutionary superpower is our ability to create shared narratives. I mean, I just can't stop thinking about it. Like just the idea that creating ideas like money or the economy or a nation like that's what makes us the best the the most evolved creature on earth that just blows my mind and i can't stop finding other things that i say oh yeah that's a narrative and that's not a narrative i love that marco 
let's say you're in the later years of your life, so many, many, many years from now, you've you're taken to your retirement home, uh, you're, you're taken in, the, the door opens, everyone looks across you in the dining room and the recreational area. How would you want to be introduced? Here's Marco. He's... My, my kids already said that they don't want to deal with me in my later years. So, yeah, absolutely. I'll be in a retirement home by 50. Um, and, yes, <laughs> I would like, I think, uh, maybe a couple of ways. I think uh, uh, something like spent a lifetime wrangling with truth, half-truths and alternative facts or or, or even, you know, uh, the, the guy that thought the answer of life, the universe and everything could be 42 or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and you just blow, yeah, blow everyone's mind then and there. They go, well, this will be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, look, look, look for me in, uh, in about 10 or 15 years at the nearest the retirement home near you. <laughs> uh, Marco, what are you up to next? Uh, dinner, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think at the moment um, it's. I'm really, really focused on 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 growing my data and analytics uh, consultancy. We we're working with a bunch of people, but I, I there's definitely a lot of opportunities for us to to grow bigger, and we're really excited for that. That that's a lot of work for me and a lot of pressure, but really looking forward to this next chapter. This year was all about kind of seeing if the business worked, and it has. So that's that's really a good good point to kind of launch myself to this new financial year that's awaiting. Um, and really kind of, you know, excited to see how this business can grow because there's so much opportunity there. Right. So building on that, where can we find you, connect with you, buy you virtual drinks or even a real drink? What are all your details, websites, socials, et cetera? So LinkedIn is uh, is my home at this point. Uh, I've, made, I've made of it a, a, a virtual home. Uh, I hate all the other social media platforms, so that was the the, the least worst I could find. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn is where you'll find a lot of my thoughts, a lot of my articles, a lot of the discussions that I have. Um, my website is uh, www.motaconsulting.com.au. Um, we've also recently launched a separate website for uh, market research. We haven't talked about it much, but that's another um, offshoot of what we do. Um, which is uh, Um And honestly, like, um, or please, you know, reach out on LinkedIn, DM me. I, I love to have a conversation. If you're in Brisbane, always always out for coffees with people. Um, since I started my business, I think I've, I've drunk more coffees in a day than I used to in a week. Um, so it's definitely, you know, I, I'm always excited to have a conversation with people, whether it's about business or it's about philosophy or it's about anything else. I was going to say, I'll get in touch for a philosophical debate pretty soon. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, well, look, Marco, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, you really have opened my eyes, I'm sure Simon as well, and just the way this has gone in so many different directions and the intersection between data, analytics, the visualization and philosophy has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And Marco, yes, yes. <laughs> a little bit of editing required here. And I, I was going to say, oh. you should say goodbye to our guest, Simon. It's just yeah. polite. 
I thought, was that maybe a good spot to end? But no, Mark, I want to reiterate exactly what uh, John uh, has said and noting we've had coffees in the past as well. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really great. And I think we need to put on the front of the episode a warning sign, good intellectual spanking ahead. So <laughs> beware. I, I, I you, don't know if brain. I'll subscribe to that kind of thing. But, yeah, go <laughs> do, do as you see fit, Simon. It's called philosophy after and, dark. I've heard so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that 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 only happens uh, when when it's you know in my uni days. So it doesn't happen anymore. Ooh, all right. So for philosophy after dark, join us in our spin-off series where Marco talks about his university life and the intellectual spankings he gave his friends. Can't wait. Wow, that's that's gone south really fast. <laughs> Hey, what a great show, Simon. I mean, that really was the sweet spot for me. There was uh, science in there. There was uh, philosophy, data. It was just fantastic. So much to take from that. But um, what are your takeaways? Well, as always, how do you narrow it down to three? For me, one that stood out was this idea of the, in AI, we talk around, you know, the morality of it. But I've never questioned, well, what is morality? Like one person's version of morality is very different. So how do you, when you think around the morality and ethics, what is ethics and how do we define what ethics are? So I guess that's part of the conversation, but something I always thought, you know, mor- morality is singular, if that's the right way to say it. Uh, I was, I was uh, always knew that was the case. I know you've got very, very loose morals compared to me, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends how you want to interpret the data you're using, John. But I that leads me to my <laughs> my second point. There was that interpretation of data or data all comes down to the question you're asking, and I think it goes to the the heart of the work or heart of what we talk about, and also a lot of the work I do with uh, clients. Well, what's the question we're asking? And as you go through when we're doing something in a problem-solving capacity, you realise the question as you dive deeper changes all the time, and that's that's okay. Which probably takes me to our third one, which is weak thoughts. So. Uh, you know, they don't have to be so strongly held opinions, but maybe sort of almost like some some guiding principles or some, you said it before, what was a better way to describe it? You said? Uh, beliefs loosely held. Yeah, beliefs yeah. loosely held. Yeah, so they're, um, I think it's a nice way to think around what, what are the beliefs we want to loosely hold on to, but be very much open to where they move. Yeah, what about you, John? Uh, well, I think that... Uh there was some great stuff around early on, which is about what philosophy offers organizations and teams, et cetera. Yeah. And the best one was the philosophy keeps the question alive or keeps questions alive. And that's what I've thought, you know, uh, outside of framing it as a, an ability to, to be good at critical thinking, it is about keeping the questions alive. And that led to then with that in mind, that the most successful organizations are the ones who can best manage uncertainty. So they are continually wrestling wrestling with questions. And to your point, what is the right question we should be wrestling with? Uh, and then take it from there. And then for teams, uh, always interested in the take on teams, what can they do? Um, I thought it was really useful to consider how 
teams, people in organisations have got their own fears that they're carrying in. And, and we know that to be curious and creative, etc., you've got to banish fear or put it on the sidelines. Um, but you've got to recognise it's not fear that's just generated within an organisation necessarily from a cultural perspective, but also what people bring. They just bring family and money and jobs and everything that they bring from their lives into it. So if you're going to get curious and creative, you have to create an environment which is where people feel safe. And that might consider how they're going to feel safe with the, the personal and the professional. Um, so, yeah, again, there's a lot you could sort of delve into there, but that was that was good. And leaders need to be humble. Uh, they need to accept they could be wrong. And I always think that is one of the big things, I think, which is always having your back pocket the idea that they may be right, I may be wrong. And being wrong, I like that. Being wrong is the start of something better. And I thought about a few three or three or four things which have happened in the last three or four weeks and not very being sort of wrong, but things haven't worked out as you would imagine. You think, no, well, that's that's the start of something better because you've got, you you prove what's right or you prove what's not working. And anyway, too much philosophy at the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. All I'd say is I'm often wrong, which makes me <laughs> such a great philosopher. Well, that's why the show works, because I'm mostly right. So uh, it's a good yin and yang there, John. Now, end of the episode. Here's Now, if, if you've got this far, still listening, jump online. Uh, wherever you're listening, leave us a review. Uh, easier said than done, because we know, you know action is hard to take. But if you can, jump online, leave us a review. If you're in a conversation where you're chatting with your friends, they go, hey, what are you listening to? All right. Tell them, tell them, chat, chat, chat. Hey, the occupational philosophers. Uh, a little bit of fun, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of stuff for my business as well. And also in the show notes, uh, the Empowering Innovation Scorecard, which you can jump on and check out the level of innovation across a number of different areas in your team. But as always, really what's important as you leave us today, we want you to play more, have fun, make stuff uh something else a date life we'll stay curious but we're, we're running that oh. order. <laughs>